Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. You can find it on page 909, 910 in the Pew Bibles there. Also, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give you a Bible. So you'll notice right there in the pews, there's these blue and white Bibles. Those are our gift to you just for being here. Please, please take one of those um, when you go. We'd love for you to have access to the Word of God. Let me ask you a question here. What is the single greatest event that you have ever participated in? You were there. You were a part of it, right? Oftentimes, when we get asked that question, most of us go to sporting events, right? Like, I was there in game six of the 2011 World Series when David Freeze hit that walk-off home run in the 11th that sent the Cardinals to game seven where they won the whole thing, right? I'm from Missouri, so we have a very rich baseball heritage in Missouri, not like other states that will go unnamed, right? (laughs) But uh, a lot of my family and friends uh, just went this past week to that huge parade that celebrated the Royals winning the World Series, right? 800,000 people at this thing. It was like, it was electric, totally shut the city down. It was phenomenal, right? They just, they were so amped up and so excited to be a part of it. I mean, 800,000 people. Have you ever been to an event that big? Maybe, maybe you, it was like a, something political, like a rally or a convention or something that you were a part of. Maybe, maybe if you were old enough, you were part of the civil rights movement and you did some, some really cool protests or something like that. Maybe you would look at a concert, you know, where that, that one dreamy guy from that boy band that you so dearly loved saw you once and reached out his hand and grabbed yours. Maybe you were there in New York on 9-11. Maybe you would point to your marriage or the birth of your children. Maybe, I don't know, you would say, what was that time on my eighth birthday when when that magician cut me in half? You know, I I don't know what it is, but what was the single greatest event that you had ever participated in? Now, did anyone say Pentecost? No one? But Chad, I wasn't even alive then. Well, yeah, that's true, but you see... What happened at Pentecost ushered in a new age for God's people, where with the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell within Christ's followers, within all of those who have repented of their sin and believe in Christ and were saved, it began there with this ushering in of the Holy Spirit, and it continues until the day of Christ's return. Peter calls this time period the last days. Right? This, this time, it, it's like one big, historical, global, ongoing event that all of Christ's followers who have all received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ participate in. And so if you are in Christ, then you are a part of that. God has fulfilled His promises. He has made a way both to satisfy His divine justice for our sin, and also to extend mercy towards the sinner. And he is restoring his people to himself through faith in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives the Holy Spirit to dwell in each and every one of his children in power to lead us until he comes again. And so one big event that dawns with the the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, that will end with Jesus' return in glory. And all of God's children, all of those who have called upon the name of the Lord and are saved, will participate in it. And so what that means is there is no bigger event that you have experienced up until now or ever will experience in your life here on earth than what's going on this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Now, if you're here and you're saying, well, yeah, that, you're, you're talking to Christians. This is about what Christians have received, but I don't, I don't follow Christ. Let me just tell you, this is also very, very relevant for you too. You see, the message that comes out of Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 is this. God has fulfilled His promise 
and the last days are upon us, and so call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now for context, I want to begin reading in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved now the first truth conveyed in this passage that's important for every single one of us to consider is that God has fulfilled his promise It's easy for us to begin to question God, to ask what He's up to, to wonder if He's real. Does He even care about us? Why are things happening the way that they are? And when will He finally and fully accomplish all of His purposes? And so what we tend to do is we tend to go about our day trying to do the things that we know that we are supposed to do, but all the while we are looking for some evidence, something tangible, some experience that we can hold on to that can give us assurance that God is faithful and God will fulfill His promises, that He is truly with us. Now, sometimes we turn towards religious observance. Look, God, I, I was baptized, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, I obey the law. I am faithful to you, and that's how I know that you are there, because I am being faithful to you. I I can have confidence that your plan will not fail, because look at what I'm doing. But sometimes we cling to experiences. Times when something mysterious or unexpected happens, something miraculous, something wonderful. Times when, when we can feel the presence and the nearness of God. And it gave us confidence at that moment that God was with us and that He has not abandoned us. And so we have this tendency either to place our faith and trust in our religious observance or in our feelings and experiences, or maybe both. And though we can say that both of these have their merits, both of them can serve as aids in the good fight of faith, neither is sufficient. Nor should we place our hope in either one of them. 
And we see it right here in this text when we think about the context of what's going on here. Because in verses 1 through 13, we see devout Jews and proselytes from all over coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this religious festival, Pentecost, according to God's laws. They have made sacrifices, right? They have given of their time. They've traveled. They've cleared up their busy schedules to make their way to Jerusalem. Or maybe they're living in Jerusalem at that time. But nevertheless, they are faithfully offering their worship to God as He is commanded. But that was not enough. If it was, we wouldn't have this event. Trusting in your religious observance can't save you. And neither can tangible, miraculous experiences. I mean, the crowd, they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They, they heard the miracle of these uneducated Galilean Christ followers speaking to them in their own native languages. But all that did was either leave them amazed and thoroughly confused, saying, what does this mean? They're, they're perplexed, they're astonished, they're befuddled, they're bewildered, but they have no idea what all of this is about. Or they mocked it, saying, these people are just filled with new wine. They totally disregarded it. You have one response or the other, but regardless of their response, regardless of their experience, no matter how amazed they were by the miraculous or, or just dismissed it as, as just insanity, it was not enough to save them. They needed to trust in the truth that God has and God will fulfill His promises. You see, it's not about their faithfulness to God or their faith in their experiences, but trust in God's faithfulness to them. I mean, they don't have any idea what it means until Peter gets up and explains it to them. And now what we see happening here is the beginning of, of a pattern that emerges throughout the book of Acts that we preachers love. Something big happens, followed by a sermon. And this will happen over and over and over again, right? And, and not just a sermon, a three-point sermon, right? So Peter's just modeling this for us. Now we're just going to look at point number one of his three-point sermon today, and I've got three points out of that. But you know, that we see this pattern, something happened, and it's followed by a sermon repeatedly happening, and this is really, really, really important for us to keep in mind. You see, we like to focus on what happened. The disciples spoke in tongues. Peter performed a miracle. Right? Saul was dramatically converted, right? Cornelius had a vision. An angel freed the apostles from prison, and we miss the message when it's the message, not the miraculous event, that gives life. Keep that in mind. It's so important as we come to this text, because so many people have so many questions. Remember, they're thoroughly confused. They're asking the question, what does this mean, until verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, filled, uh, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And so, let this be known to you, Redeemer Church. Give ear to these words. Don't get distracted by what has just happened and miss the words. Is the words give life. Peter stands, united with the other 11 apostles to bear witness. Even the tongues they spoke in, we learned last week, were given to bear witness. It's not to just get caught up in the miraculous, but to recognize that those tongues were clear evidence that God's presence is upon His people and to enable them for the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. Let's not forget that. That was the main idea that we looked at last week from verses 1 through 13. 
And so Peter stands up to address the crowd. And you know, to my surprise, he kind of gives this quick acknowledgement to the mockers. He says, these, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. That's not three in the morning. That's nine in the morning. Right, they have a dis- different system for marking out the days. And so this, the ninth hour, is when devout Jews would devote themselves to prayer. And not to mention the fact that they're at Pentecost. This is a religious festival that they're all there observing. So he's saying, look, that idea is insane. That would be like the most faithful members of Redeemer Church coming here tanked on Easter Sunday. Just, could you imagine? Wouldn't happen. Better not happen. (laughs) Now Peter stands up and he's united with the other 11 apostles to bear witness And he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so the first point of his sermon is this quotation from the prophet Joel that we're looking at this morning in verses 14 through 21. And what he's saying here is this that you are seeing and hearing, the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is a sign that the day of the Lord is at hand. Point number two of his sermon is found in verses 22 through 28. That the death and resurrection of Jesus happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And point number three in verses 29 through 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then he calls them to repentance and faith in verses 37 through 41. Now, Just in case you happen to be thinking to yourself, okay, fine, he preached a three-point sermon, but his sermon was five minutes long. I just want to draw your attention to verse 40, where it says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. All right? So I'm just helping you to get a gist for what those many more words were. All right? What we have here in the book of Acts are Luke's faithful, reliable, Holy Spirit-inspired sermon notes. But look at what Peter does. Peter directs their attention away from their religious practice and away from the miraculous events to the truth of God's faithfulness. Now, Notice in verse 16, Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. All right, so Peter could not be clearer on his view of Scripture. The same could be said for the book of Acts and for all the Word of God, all of Scripture, all the New Testament as well. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So these are not the words of men. These are the words of God. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David beforehand. And because the Holy Spirit has spoken through the mouth of David beforehand, therefore, Scripture has to be fulfilled. And here he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So who did the uttering? The Holy Spirit did the othering. The same Holy Spirit that gave them, these disciples, utterance in chapter 2, verse 4. And so even that needs to clue us in just a little bit on how they viewed the authority and the nature of the revelation of the prophecy in tongues that they were speaking. Just like Joel and just like David, the Holy Spirit gave them utterance to speak the words of God. And that's how we need to come to this text. These are not the words of men. This is the word of God. Both the original quotes of David and Joel, as well as Peter's sermon and all of Scripture, are God's words. Or as it says right there in verse 17, God declares When we read the Bible, God declares. He declares to you. You get that, right? And so His words carry all of His power, all of His authority, 
all of his truth, all of his perfections. We can trust him in it. Now Joel's prophecy, which you can find in the book of Joel in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, was originally uttered for the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and it happened centuries earlier, many, many, many years earlier. And through Joel, God warned Israel of a coming day of the Lord, how it would be far worse than this horrible locust invasion and drought that they were experiencing, far worse than any invading army that they could imagine. And so Joel calls them to repent, to turn away from their sin, and that God would have pity on them. God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. He would judge the nations for their rebellion against Him, and He would restore Israel to Himself so that they could dwell with Him under His rule and blessing in perfect righteousness and holiness. Now, the reason why Luke makes a point in verses 5 through 11 and again in verse 14 to make sure that we understand that the people Peter was preaching to in his sermon were devout Jews and proselytes dwelling in Jerusalem. He says it twice, dwelling in Jerusalem, is so that his readers could clearly understand that Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. God has kept his promise to Israel. That if they repent of their sin, if they rend their hearts to Him, He will pour out His Spirit upon them and restore them to Himself. But those who won't will be judged, and it won't be pretty. Far worse than any locust invasion. Far worse than any drought. Far worse than being ravaged by invading armies. And so this is what's happening here at Pentecost. God is fulfilling His promise in sending His Holy Spirit in their presence and through Peter's sermon to these devout Jews who are dwelling in Jerusalem, God is calling them to faith in Christ and thereby Israel is being restored. Now, because God is good, because He is gracious, because He is powerful, because He is sovereign, over all things, including the tongues of men, God wanted to make absolutely clear that He has been faithful to keep His promises. Which is why verse 17 says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so these tongues, these visions, these dreams, all of which are forms of prophecy, they serve as overwhelming evidence and as clear signs to all that God has indeed generously poured out his Holy Spirit. Remember from last week, we said tongues are the Spirit-given ability to proclaim the mighty works of God in other native languages for the sake of mission and edification. Dreams and visions are God-given revelation to direct God's people to fulfill God's mission. That's the way we see them used throughout Scripture and especially in Acts. Notice the word mission. Prophecy is a spirit-given knowledge of God that compels us to proclaim who He is and what He has done and what He will do in order to advance His mission. Or as Martin Luther put it, the prophecy we see here in Acts chapter 2 is the knowledge of God through Christ which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. And like that, that burning like a fire, it will spread to others. We know Him so that we can make Him known. 
And the whole point of the mighty rushing wind, the appearance of divided tongues as a fire, and Christ's followers suddenly speaking in other native languages was to give clear evidence that God has indeed kept His promise. He has poured out His Holy Spirit on all who call upon the name of the Lord. And this outpouring is generous, it is final, and it is universal. That word outpouring is meant to describe a torrential downpour. So no longer will God drizzle out the Holy Spirit on select people at select times for select purposes, for select periods. But He will flood all of His people irrevocably on all flesh, that is, all who call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of their station, regardless of their pedigree, regardless of their past, regardless of their race, regardless of how much money they have in the bank account, it doesn't matter. In verses 17 and 18, we see that He will pour out the Holy Spirit on sons and on daughters, on the young and on the old, even those of low status, on my Male servants and female servants. And God says, mine. He cares about them deeply. And not just to devout Jews and proselytes, He will pour out His Spirit on all people. People from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation under heaven until the day when the full number has been reached and Christ returns again. Now, there are many many more words I would like to say about this. So many questions, so many things to understand about this text, but let me just try to explain to you why this matters. God speaks. God has declared. And God will surely do it. God makes promises and God never breaks His promises. He promised the nation of Israel who had sinned against Him so many times, broken His covenant so many times, that He would restore all of those who call upon His name and would prove it by pouring out His Holy Spirit upon them. And here we see that He has done just that. That He is restoring the sinner to Himself. And He's not just restoring them. He is lavishly pouring out His Holy Spirit upon them. And friends, so what that means is that if you are in Christ, do you realize that the gift that you have been given in the Holy Spirit is a gift that prophets like Joel, priests like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, kings like David and Solomon and all the devout Jews throughout the history of Israel after that promise that Joel made long to receive, you have received it. You are the beneficiaries of the promise that God had made to them so long ago. You have that. And friends, if you have that, if you are the recipient of God's promises to them, then surely He will keep every promise that He has made to you in Christ. And this gift of the Holy Spirit that we have received has been and is being poured out on all of God's people, regardless of who they are, regardless of their age, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their status, regardless of their education, regardless of their background, regardless of the depths of their sin. This was given according to Joel, so that all shall prophesy. Not that you need to speak in tongues or see visions or dream dreams to be saved. Not prophecy in the sense that you have a word from God or that you are speaking the word of God. Thus saith the Lord, so we better hurry up and write it down and canonize it for all of God's people. Right? There's a difference between God gifting us roles like prophet 
an apostle for authoritative revelation to establish his church, and the Spirit's gifting all of God's people for illumination that leads to praise and proclamation. The gift of the Holy Spirit was given not so that we can boast in our abilities that are not even ours and try to exalt ourselves over the others because the Holy Spirit happens to be working in and through us for the good of other people. Now, the Holy Spirit's illumination is working to turn the lights on in our hearts and in our minds so that we can come to a saving knowledge of God through Christ. As Luther said, the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. And that compels us all to praise God, to proclaim his name for the salvation of the sinner, for hope to the sufferer, and for the building up of the saint. Not to boast in ourselves. That's how Joel's prophecy is fulfilled in us. God restores us to himself. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. And the effect is that we declare his mighty works to others. To sinner, to sufferer, and to saint. That's the whole purpose behind these extraordinary gifts mentioned in this text. Not to marvel in the gifts themselves, but to rejoice in the fact that God discloses a knowledge of himself so that we can make him known for his glory, for the good of others, and for our joy in him. And all of that comes through proclamation as we, as we hear from those Christ gave to be his spokesman those capital P prophets, and as we proclaim it to one another. And so the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is proof, first, that God has fulfilled His promise. Second, it's proof that the last days are upon us. In verse 17, Peter deviates from Joel's original wording in a very, very significant way. You see, the book of Joel, Joel reads, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and under the instruction of Christ, adds, And in these last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So it goes from and afterward to in these days. And this is significant because Joel, prophesying centuries earlier, sort of saw the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the day of the Lord as coming almost simultaneously. He's, he's seeing this from a long way off. But Christ has revealed to Peter and the apostles that this would not be simultaneous, but over a span of time. You see, again, the Old Testament prophets were seeing the day of the Lord from greater distance. It's like when you're driving in your car and you first see mountains appear on the horizon. I mean, what do they look like? They look like a jagged line that sort of juts up over the trees. One wall. But as you get closer and closer and closer to the mountains, you recognize that there's more depth to it, that it's not this jagged wall of a mountain, but rather it's mountains that you can pass your way through. It's an entire range. And then you can pass by this one, and then that one, and continue to make your way through, and there's still more ahead. That's what's happening here. It's the same with these last days that Peter speaks of. The birth of Christ. Is the first mountain. John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord, a second. Jesus' ministry, a third. His death and resurrection, a fourth and a fifth. His ascension, a sixth. And now, Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a seventh. Peter is saying, this that you are seeing and hearing, this is that. But there's still more to come. 
Because verses 19 and 20 say, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. This is speaking of a day to come, a day of judgment. Now he tells us all of these signs and wonders in the heavens, right? The vapor of blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Not to give us signs so that we can determine the day or hour of Christ's return. We had a recent experience of that, right? Super blood moon, come and gone. We're still here. But the thing you have to ask yourself is this. Didn't, hasn't God been doing this all along? I mean, you think about it. Didn't he do that at the birth of Christ? Signs and wonders in the heavens? What about the ministry of Christ? Wonders, signs on the earth below? At the death of Christ, as darkness covered the whole land? What about his resurrection, his ascension? And yet we know from Jesus' own words in the Gospels, we know from the message of the the apostles that they proclaimed. We know from the vision that God gave to John in Revelation that there is still more to come. Whether literal or symbolic, these things will happen before the great and magnificent day of the Lord comes. A day of judgment for all of God's enemies and a day of full and final restoration for all of God's people forever. That day when Christ returns in glory is still yet to come. And we, like Peter and the apostles, are living in these last days. A new day has dawned. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a sign that the day of the Lord is at hand. And with each and every passing day, we are closer and closer and closer. Now, This leads many to ask the question, well, okay, now if Pentecost was the sign of the beginning of these last days that are going to continue until Christ comes again, does that mean that Joel's prophecy regarding visions and dreams and prophecy and tongues will continue? In other words, they're asking the question, are miraculous gifts for today? Do they continue or have they ceased? Let me just first say, that's not the purpose of Joel's prophecy or Peter's sermon. All right? The point is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a sign that God has fulfilled His promise and that the day of the Lord is at hand. And the implication of us is that we, not that we all must prophesy or speak in tongues, but that we are to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Okay, that's what this is about. That being said, let me attempt to answer the question. Okay, are miraculous gifts for today? Should we understand things like prophecy and visions and dreams and tongues and miracles to continue? Now, I just want to note something right here. There's more of a perk in your appearance before me, right? This has a way of kind of gathering our attention back Right? Next, I'm going to talk about end times. And so we'll have the two big topics that everybody wants to know about. Right? Um, <laughs> so let me answer that question. I would say yes and no. You see, I'm in that camp that's known as open but cautious, which guys on both sides, guys that believe that these things continue, and guys that believe that they have ceased both kind of criticize my view as being practical cessationists. It's fair enough criticism, quite honestly, because I see it as being open in particular contexts for very particular purposes. But here's why I come to the, view, the conclusion I do. First of all, I believe that God is sovereign and all-powerful, that He holds rights over all things, from the wind and the waves to the very tongues of men. And he has divine right as God to do all his holy will. 
And just as he has throughout history, in the creation of the world, in a worldwide flood, in the sending of the plagues, in the parting of the seas, in signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth below, down to prophecy, the confusing and the clarifying of tongues, and things like prophecy, the giving of the word to his apostles and prophets, God can do and God does all that he pleases. He can heal, he can perform miracles, he can reveal his will through the mouths of prophets. He can cause people to see visions and dream dreams and supernaturally enable them to speak in other tongues. Furthermore, I'm not fully convinced by the textual arguments of cessationists from passages like 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, that tongues and prophecy have ceased, but I do agree with them that they are passing away. And I think that the history of the church supports that. I think that Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 gets very close, but I still think the phrase that the Holy Spirit distributes according to the Father's will still keeps it open. In addition... I believe that there have been and will continue to be genuine experiences of miracles, healings, sudden utterances from the Lord, tongues, dreams, and visions. I just had a conversation with one of you last week about how the Lord healed a friend of yours who had been bedridden for years. There are a number of brothers that I came into contact with while I was in India who testified to seeing visions or dreaming dreams that led them to opportunities to hear the gospel and believe. Now, it was not the visions or the dreams that saved them. It was hearing the gospel. But the visions and the dreams are what stuck out to them. And even while I was there one time, I was preaching to a large group shared the gospel with them. I don't know how many were there, over 300. A man came up to me afterwards and he said, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you. Now, you know, I'm an American, right? So I was like, okay, you know, you saw me at the train station. You saw me at the market. You saw me walk down the street. I'm white. I'm pretty obvious, right? But I come to find out later on that what he meant was that he had seen me in a dream days before. And so that when he came across me on the street, he turned and followed for about a mile. I thought that he knew the people that we were with, but he didn't. But he heard the gospel and believed. God used that. Now, I'm not about to discount or discredit those experiences. God can and God does. But our experiences are not absolute indicators of what is true. We don't determine, we don't identify, we don't translate, we don't interpret based upon our experiences. Many have had genuine experiences of God miraculously working around them and praise God for that. But those experiences are not what we place our trust in. And unfortunately, many have been led astray by the desire to place their hope and their trust in such experiences. Now, that being said, I do believe that Pentecost is a unique event in the history of redemption. That it is not meant to describe a normal, everyday church experience. I mean, let's just take this one issue of prophecy and run it out across biblical history. Take a real quick tour through Scripture. Now, the first prophet that's given acknowledgement is found in Genesis chapter 20, and that's Abraham. We don't really know how it is that he was a prophet per se, but God calls him one. But the first prophet we know for sure about is Moses, right? Moses saw visible manifestations of God. He spoke to the Lord face to face. He delivered God's message to his people and God performed miracles through him. But God didn't do the same things with Aaron, the high priest, or Joshua, his second in command, the one who would carry on his leadership role after him, 
or even the prophetess Miriam, who is called a prophetess because of her spontaneous songwriting ability. The 70 elders that Moses appointed prophesied once but never again, leaving him to say in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, that he wished that all of the Lord's people would prophesy. And Joel picks up on that centuries later. Instead, though, Moses prophesied that God would raise up one prophet like him from among the people, and God would put his words in him and say all, and he would say all that God has commanded. Now, Acts chapter 3 is going to clue us in on who that is. All right, I'm just going to spill the beans. It's Jesus. Very few of the judges could prophesy, and their prophecy was very, very sporadic. The greatest of these judges who was a prophet was Samuel. But once God established his kingship, all of a sudden, many, many prophets arrived on the scene. Thousands of them, right? So many that we, we don't even know all their names. We don't even come close to knowing what they prophesied. And it got to the point where it's so bad that it's like, you know, when Elijah ran away from Jezebel up on the mountain and he said, Lord, they've killed all of your prophets. He's like, actually, no, I've got like 7,000 hiding in a cave. We don't have any idea who they were or what they said, but we do know what they did, right? Because prophets in that day were kind of like covenant police or covenant lawyers. They kept the kings and the people of God in check and made sure that they were they were faithful to uphold their end of the covenant. The greatest of these prophets was Elijah and Elisha, who could perform miracles by the hand of God. But you ever notice how the writing prophets could not? You know, guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel, they saw visions. Daniel, he could even interpret dreams, but no miracles. No speaking in tongues whatsoever. All of that continues until Malachi, and then after Malachi, guess what happens? 400 plus years of silence. Nothing. Then John the Baptist, then Jesus, and then the foundational ministry of the apostles and prophets to establish the church. We get to the book of Acts. Even there, prophecy is limited. Right? So, Acts chapter 11, some of the prophets made their way from Jerusalem to establish the church in Antioch. There's the false prophet Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13. We don't want to follow him, right? You've got um, Judas and Silas who were called prophets in Acts 15. In Acts 19, you've got this situation where 12 men were baptized uh, in John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, but when they were baptized in the name of Christ, suddenly they start prophesying and speaking in tongues one time and never again. We know that Philip's four daughters were prophetesses, right? They prophesied, but we don't know what they said or what they did in Acts 21. And then you've got Agabus in Acts 11 and Acts 21, and that's it. That's hardly all flesh prophesying as Joel predicted. Only Ananias, Peter, Cornelius, and Paul had visions and acts. Only other persons mentioned in the New Testament as having visions or dreams were John in Revelation and false teachers in Colossians 2 and Jude. The only indication of tongues were here, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius as proof that the Holy Spirit had come to the Gentiles. Then those guys in Acts chapter 19, those 12 men who, who spoke in tongues once and never again. And then in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And they lacked none of the gifts, which even might suggest that at times gifts could be lacking. The rest of the New Testament has almost as much to say about false prophets as it does to the church with regards to good and right prophecy. And prophecy when, is really hard to define. Prophecy ranges from occasionally foretelling future events to what happens far more often, which is the foretelling, the declaring of what has just happened. Miriam the prophetess, that spontaneous songwriter, that's what she was doing. 
She just told what had just happened in song. Okay? So we get up here with the Caleb gets up here with his guitar and he starts playing and singing a song and coming up with something extemporaneously. There you go, prophecy. Sometimes prophecy carried with it the authoritative revelation for the establishment of the church. That is capital P prophecy. Other times, it's synonymous with teaching, with praying in public, with encouraging or building up the body, or even sudden declarations given by those who have great faith. Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it's as simple as declaring the mighty works of God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brings this to mind and gives us the words to speak. And so what this means is that when you, in reliance upon the direction and the equipping power of the Holy Spirit to teach the lesson in the children's ministry, or when you share the gospel with someone who does not follow Christ, when you pray for others, or when you encourage a brother or sister from the Word of God, you, in that lowercase p sense, prophesy. And really, I think that that's what Joel's getting at when he says that all shall prophesy. This Spirit-led mutual edification of the church. And in that sense, in that case, it absolutely continues. All the church shall prophesy. Now where we go wrong is when we confuse illumination with revelation. The Holy Spirit works within each and every believer to open his eyes and his mind and his heart and his mouth to the truth of God. And when it clicks, it is powerful. It's like a new revelation to us or to other people. The Holy Spirit brings something to mind. He discloses some bit of information. He gives you discernment into what's going on underneath. Or he helps you to see the big picture of what's going on like never before. And it leaves you in awe. And you're compelled then to tell other people to share that with others for their edification. And it's powerful. It's effective. It's fruitful for you and for them. But it's not new revelation. It's illumination. God has already revealed himself completely in Christ. You can't get a clearer picture of who God is than God made flesh and dwelling among us who lived a perfect life, obeyed God's laws, showed his power in unimaginable ways, died on a cross, rose again, ascended to, set, to secure our place in heaven and sends out his Holy Spirit to lead his people until he comes again. You just do not get better than that. There's no added revelation that you need that's really going to help you out. It's like, okay, yeah, Jesus did all that for me, but what I really need is to know, you know, where I'm supposed to go today and who am I supposed to share the gospel with? I'll, I'll clue you in. Everybody! That's a word from the Lord right there. We don't need that. We don't need to trust in that. We don't need to look to that. The canon is closed. We have already received the complete word of God. There is nothing left to reveal in the capital P sense. To his people, other than the application of previous revelation to our lives or the fulfillment of previously revealed truth like the day of the Lord that is still yet to come. And so we are to not despise prophecies. Instead, we are to test them. And what do we test them against? The Word of God. And we hold fast to what is good. Or as Charles Spurgeon said, look, if it disagrees with Scripture, you don't want it. If it agrees with Scripture, you don't need it. 
But just because the Lord has brought something to mind, no matter how true, no matter how powerful, right, no matter how fitting it is for the situation, it's not revelation, it's illumination. It's not a word from the Lord, it is the word of the Lord that is coming to bear upon the hearts and souls of His people. We go wrong when we exchange the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture for the novelty of a new experience. When we equate our feelings with the Holy Spirit, when we place our faith in the experience of a thing rather than the one to whom the whole thing points. Friends, do not exchange the giver for the gifts. As miraculous as the gifts are, they are not as good as the Holy Spirit whom you have been given. We go wrong when we falsely assume that you must experience this in order to be saved. Or that they are your gifts rather than gifts of the Spirit, right? Or, or, or having that experience somehow gives you permission then to exalt yourselves over others. Friends, every gift of the Spirit from those things that we would consider miraculous to those things that we would see as commonplace, like service, are meant to, one, advance the mission of the gospel to places where it has not been proclaimed. That's a good context for tongues, not in a worship service where everyone speaks the same language. Remember, tongues are for clarity, not for confusion. Two, to build up the church not to edify yourself, but to edify and strengthen and encourage and teach. Three, to bring glory to God and not to man. And four, to make you more like Jesus. If the gift that you're bragging about having is not serving all four of those purposes, then you're using it wrongly. Now again, I, I could say... A whole lot more. But I need to wrap this up. Because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it proves that God has fulfilled His promises. It proves that the last days are upon us. And so third, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and and all the ways that it's experienced at Pentecost were meant to prove to us that the day of the Lord is drawing near. And with that comes the implication that judgment is coming. That no one will escape. That when the Lord returns, He will judge the wicked, but He will save the repentant sinner. Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now in Joel, the Lord was in reference to God the Father, but Peter is interpreting this in light of Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the implication of Pentecost, the need it reveals, the requirement that it demands is not that you participate in certain experiences, but that you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. God is not interested in your ecstatic experiences or your religious observance, but that you call upon Him with a sincere heart. Or as Joel said, rend to me your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Friends, We have all sinned against God. We have all done what is evil in His sight. We have all earned the anger and punishment of God. And the only hope for any of us is not found in our attempts to legalistically obey God's law or to trust in our feelings or experiences, but to fall on our knees and cry out to Christ who died to pay for the power and penalty of sin, and who rose again 
to forever restore us to God. And so call upon Him and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is the whole purpose of Pentecost. God has fulfilled His promise. The day of the Lord is upon us. And so call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that it would come and fill us, that it would bring about clarity, conviction, and joy, and hope, and peace, and thanksgiving. God, we thank you that you have given all of those who are in Christ your spirit, that he has been poured out upon us. Those promises that you made through the mouth of Joel so long ago, you have fulfilled in us as a guarantee that we are yours until Jesus comes again. And God, we, we thank you for that. God, forgive us for the ways that we get so caught up in the world and so caught up in experiences or so caught up in trying to earn our way to you that we miss the fact that if we are in Christ, if we have received the Holy Spirit, we are yours. Help us to rest in that. And Lord, if there are those here who have not received the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would press upon each of their hearts the fact that Jesus will come again, either for judgment or restoration, and that regardless of who they are or what they've experienced, there is hope because they too can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's in his name we pray. Amen.